Welcome to Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Sitting at the cafe on the campus of the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. From here, I can see tourists passing through the doors on their way to the permanent collection that features centuries of art. Peeking out from behind the Art of the Americas building are some of LACMA's newest additions the newly planted palm trees along Wilshire Boulevard and the Broad Contemporary Art Museum, which is set to open early next year with its pale stone panels and bright red staircase crawling up its side. The museum is usually bustling with activity at this hour, but this week its curators are preparing for its next exhibition, Dali, Painting and Film, which opens this weekend. I've seen the life here at LACMA firsthand while walking through its galleries, watching a classic movie, or attending the Live at LACMA music series. Last week, as part of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, Anne Philbin, the director of the Hammer Museum, chatted with the man behind it all, Michael Govin. After recently completing his first year as director, he joins us at Socalo to recount his journey from the East Coast to the West and to share his vision for LACMA and the future of art in L.A. Here is Anne Philbin. Thank you. We have to be really nice to Michael tonight because he just came out of a board meeting. (laughs) Michael, your arrival in Los Angeles about a year ago has caused quite a stir. And I, for one, am thrilled to have you here as a colleague because we've known each other for a long time. We both ran institutions in New York. I ran the Drawing Center when he was running DIA. And it's very exciting to have you here. I've seen you in action for a while now, but I thought maybe it would be helpful if this audience had a brief overview of where you've been and how you got here. So I'm going to hope that we could do that a little bit in chronological order. But I wanted to first say that before he came to L.A. as the director and CEO of LACMA over a year ago, he was the president and director of DIA Art Foundation in New York, where he, as I said, accomplished amazing feats, most notably the opening of DIA Beacon in upstate New York. Before DIA, you worked closely with Tom Krenz at the Guggenheim as his deputy director for six years, and prior to that, you worked with him at the Williams College Museum of Art in Williamstown, Massachusetts. At the Guggenheim, you worked on the restoration project of the landmark Frank Lloyd Wright building and also Guggenheim Bilbao, which we'd love to hear about, with Frank Geary. You were also instrumental with Tom Krenz in conceiving and building Mass Mocha, which is a very special, remarkable contemporary art space in western Massachusetts. Throughout all of this, you have managed to stay very close to the content, the art. You've curated exhibitions, you've fostered very strong relationships with artists, And your most recent accomplishment along those lines was the Dan Flavin exhibition at LACMA, which I hope you all saw. It was very, very special. That's a lot for a young man such as yourself to have accomplished in a short time. You don't feel young right now, I know that. (laughs) See the gray hairs? (laughs) We've read a lot about you since you arrived, but I realized when I was sort of preparing for this that And I've known you for a while. I have no idea about your childhood. I have no idea where you were born, where you Uh came from, how you got here. So could we just have like a little brief sketch about that, if you don't mind? I'm interested in that, aren't you? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Tough question. See, this is is what happens when you're late. You get the 
Punishment. <laughs> well, I won't go into a whole uh, story about my childhood, but it's really a pleasure to be here to uh, speak with all of you and hopefully hear some questions, which I'm interested in, and to be here with you, Annie, because I don't joke. I'm very serious when I said I followed you here, that I remember our first... He wants me to be easy on him, I think. <laughs> I'm trying. You'll tell me if it's working. I remember when you first came to Los Angeles, sitting down at the Japanese restaurant not far from the Hammer and talking about Los Angeles. And it was a very meaningful conversation. You talked about both your exhilaration at the opportunity. You talked about the frustrations you'd encountered. You'd had those days when you were ready to move back to New York. And you talked about the difference in these two amazingly huge and interesting metropolises that have, you know, there's nothing like these, I mean, there, there are some cities like these cities, but it, it's, they're so big, they're so complicated, uh, full of potential and full of complications. Mm-hmm. So when the opportunity first came up, I, I thought a lot about those conversations and what you had accomplished here in the, that time, I think it was something like seven or eight years. Eight, almost nine. Yeah. Well, it was eight, seven or eight then. And how you'd sort of changed the attitude and the level of energy. The hammer, it could, I know you could have done that anywhere, but it was nice. And what we were seeing was a number of institutions as MOCA had formed and created this place that was one of the number one places in the world for contemporary art, and then you were coming. And I think that this, the energy's been building. A lot of people say that uh, Los Angeles is always about to happen. That's been true for a long time, but th- there really is critical mass, and I credit you for a lot of that. So back to my childhood? Well, yeah, well, maybe we should start at LACMA and move back we to your childhood. We can move backwards. Yeah. Did I get out of it? <laughs> no. <laughs> maybe to make it relevant, yeah. backwards and yeah. forwards. Obviously, I spent a lot of time in New York, as you did, but I didn't grow up in New York. I was born in Massachusetts. In fact, I was born in North Adams, Massachusetts, which mm. played an interesting That's part where Massamoka is, right? Yeah, because that's where um, I went to and then ended up quite sort of by chance going to Williams College. And North Adams and Williamstown, Massachusetts, where Williams Colleges are very close together. And it was a classic town-gown relationship where the regular people lived in North Adams and the elitist, you know, semi-Ivy League school was in Williamstown. And the exciting part about the Mass Mocha project was that here was an abandoned factory from a, you know, working-class city that stood right next to Williamstown. It was the identification of all the cultural resources in this area, in that area, ranging from uh, the Williams College Museum of Art, the Clark Art Institute, which is very well known for its impressionist and late 19th century American painting collection, Jacob's Pillow Dance Festival, and Tanglewood, the, the music, uh, summer music home of the Boston Symphony. And so there was a sense of this cultural energy, and none of it had affected North Adams. So here was a chance to take a place that had huge unemployment and uh, have some role for culture that was not just, you know, not just for the rich and not just for the elite. And it was a very exciting project. I remember cutting my teeth, if you will, on that, trying to envision it with drawings, working for Tom, and uh, going down to this... You made the drawings yourself? I I made the drawings myself for, you know, this is how the museum would look and this is how the art would be laid out. Not all the drawings. We had had an architect too. And then lobbying for this legislation in, in the State House in Boston. I remember at one moment bringing Count Panza di Bumo, the famous Count Panza, whose collection is partly here at MOCA, 
and bringing him all the way from Italy to testify in Boston for the importance of you know contemporary art. And he immediately noticed all the Italian names on the list and <laughs> you know addressed them directly. And it was a really important moment for bringing sort of disparate energies together. And you know the rest was history. There was a um, a bond issue for $32 million, I think, that the state of Massachusetts offered. Those were in the days when Dukakis was running for, was going to run for president, and he wanted to extend the economic miracle of Massachusetts into North Adams, and he, there weren't a lot of other opportunities. So culture was an innovative concept. As you know, that was not a, the best-run presidential campaign. He lost, and with it, Mass Mocha nearly died. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, I'd kind of moved on, but that was a formative experience, and even the idea of being born in North Adams. I remember when the mayor of North Adams was getting very complicated about everything because maybe he was going to hire the contractors, and he wanted a hand in the design, and it was the moment when I threatened to expose that, in fact, he had been born in Williamstown. And I had this certificate to prove I was born in, Ma- in uh, North Adams. So there was this nice role reversal. And it was this idea that the museum had a role in the society at large. It had, an ec- had a role in an economic impact. And I guess to take that back to anything relevant from my childhood, it's that I grew up in Washington, D.C., actually, Arlington, Virginia. My father worked for the State Department uh, for international and uh, in international relationship relations for AID. My mother was did many things, was an activist, uh, an attorney. But I grew up with this incredible sense of uh, civic responsibility, mm-hmm. and uh, also the sense of living in Washington of a city that was a planned city to represent something. It was full of symbols. The city. And you really realized how a city could be built with symbols, with ideas, as, you know, Thomas Jefferson had a hand in that, uh, L'Enfant did the plan, but, and then, of course, later when I went to study in Rome, in my college days, I sort of put all that together in terms of how the neoclassical idea of a planned city, of a monumental architecture, of civic space, uh, all came together, and in fact, when later I applied to graduate school, the fellowship I got to go to graduate school was actually not an art fellowship. I went for fine arts at San Diego. So you started out as an art historian, but then decided you wanted to st- go to study studio art? I actually did sort of everything, I guess, and in college, went to college interested in art, so I did a art history and fine arts and double major. And I understand major. you did the art history major at Williams College, and then you did the art school at UCSD. Actually, I did... I majored in both at Williams and graduated in fine arts rather than art history. I see. But I was the... F- I think I was the first double major in history there. Not that it was a big deal, but right. people think of art studio and art history and you think they must be in the same department. But anybody who's worked in an academic institution will know that it's not true. As um, Barnett Newman, I think, once said, or somebody said, art history is to artists as ornithology is to birds. Right. <laughs> right. There's a wide gap. And but, but did you experience. think that you were going to be an artist? Is that what you... That was the plan. That was you the plan. You rebel against... You know, all the things you're supposed to do, which is government or be a lawyer or all the things that you're trained to do through your family upbringing. And then Tom Krenz, who you all probably know is the, the director, was the director of the Guggenheim, swept you away? Is that what happened into this museum director business or museum no, business? No, it wasn't. Actually, I, I went to Williams. I, was, I kept both in balance. You know, I, I worked 
edited the paper and was interested in civic issues or as they pertain to the school. But it was actually in meeting him, um, I think the story was I went in to interview him for a magazine that I was doing. And I had, because I wanted to stay in Williamstown for to be with some friends for a summer, I sort of conned the president of the college into a grant to make a magazine on the arts at Williams. This was my first fundraising effort, which, as I remember, made the art departments quite jealous because they had always wanted something like this, but nobody had the uh, wherewithal to just walk into the president's office and say, here's my plan, I'm going to make a magazine on the arts at Williams to market Williams to young art students of all kinds, and show them what an incredibly amazing place it is. So I went and interviewed Tom Krenz, and Tom Krenz had this huge worldview. I mean, here you are in Williamstown, and you you probably don't know Williamstown. It's a tiny little town in northwest Massachusetts. It's a very relatively conservative college in a rural environment, very kind of regular in that sense, high-quality academics. And here Tom Krenz was talking about the whole world, as if it was present. He was talking about, you know, riding his motorcycle through Turkey, working on archaeological digs, how you could bring culture from worldwide to Williamstown. And he meant it. He was rebuilding the Williams College Museum of Art. He himself had an economics and studio art background. Well, also, Williams College is legendary for spawning museum directors. For some reason, we still don't know what what the reason is. It's in the water. There was a generation of professors that included Lane Faison and Whitney Stoddard, who I actually were still alive when I was there, and Tom Krenz credits them for that inspiration, as does Rusty Powell and James Wood, and I can go on and on, the Glenn Lowry at the MoMA, they, they sort of were connected. We were a younger generation. Mm-hmm. But I guess that came through. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe what's relevant is that it, the idea is the worldview could be anywhere. It could be in a rural town like Williamstown, obviously an academic institution. And, and that was very palpably exciting. And that's when um, I started to work for him to ask me if he, I would design the posters and catalogs mm-hmm. since I had done a good job with the magazine. One thing led to the other, and Mass Mocha was really the formative experience where I think I thought about museum building, and then I tried to get out of it because it did have a... um, It was attractive, this idea of getting involved in politics and the museum and going to lobby for legislation for an art museum in a small town. It was very... It was intoxicating in that sense, and I said if I was going to be an artist, I really had to cut that off and go to school. So that's when I decided to go to... uh, UCSD, University Mm -hmm. of California, San Diego. Who did you study with there? What drew me there was the faculty, which included people like the late Alan Capro, Mm -hmm. who recently passed away, who was, for those of you who don't know, one of the great innovators in 20th century art. And he was an artist. He, I guess you, he sort of invented the genre of performance art, right. you could say. Mocha's doing a big exhibition of his work coming up. And there'll be events that happen, restaging of some of his performances throughout the city. And the interesting thing is Alan Capro always had a, a kind of ethical sensibility about his work. It was meant not necessarily in protest, but in in the sense of community building, those actions. And what was so beautiful is that they were both politically relevant but artistically beautiful. And that's mm-hmm. a hard thing to accomplish. We, uh, MoCA has invited all the museums around the city to recreate some of these actions. And our museum in, is going to do one that was done in 1975 where every single person who works in the museum is going to take their chair out onto the street and sit on the street with their chair for hours. All of us. 
That's the kind of work he did. <laughs> and I loved that. That What a great idea. And there were other people like uh, David Anton, who you may know. And yeah. there was an, also an art history component. So it seemed very idealistic. You go to California. It was near the beach. So then the Guggenheim. You moved. Tom went to, to New York and took you along with him as his deputy director. Well, I guess I went to school. And meantime, things changed. And he went to the Guggenheim. Yeah. And... Fine. That was fine. I did some consulting work for him and thought, I'm just going to finish school. And then about a year later, I guess, the problem is you can't actually be involved. You can't be an artist and support art at the level I was doing it at the same time. There's an internal conflict of interest True. that and to be an artist, you have to, you, you, first of all, there has to be a certain amount of boredom, mm-hmm. a certain amount of empty space that you can stare at the studio blank wall, which I had done, but I I knew what that felt like. You also have to have a kind of drive that you can't do anything else. Mm -hmm. I think that's true of a lot of great artists, is that it's not always a career path in the sense that, well, I'm going to be a doctor or a lawyer or an artist. It's, it's It's something internal. And I think I questioned whether I had that. Mm-hmm. And then you read about, uh, well, you know, artists have become artists at all stages of their life. Matisse was a banker. He became a painter at whatever, 40-whatever mm-hmm. years old. So I guess the idea was you could always go back to art. It wasn't – and the conflict was too strong, and New York was a very exciting place, so I did. I think the fact that you were an artist, though, is definitely has definitely colored your career. It has certainly led you in directions, I think, that – many museum directors might not go in. I think your involvement with projects like the Earthworks, I mean, we're skipping ahead a little bit to Dia, perhaps, but I had the pleasure of going to see Roden Crater with, by Jim Terrell, who's working on it right now. You have been working on this project with him for many, many years. I'd love you to tell people about this, because I think this is the place where you are still an artist. When I watched you with Jim, and I realized how deeply you were engaged in this project, I realized you're actually a collaborator, and you've been doing this for a long time. So talk about that a little bit. Well, I can talk about Roden Crater. I don't, I'm a little, you know, I'm always worried about that relationship as well, let's As, just say that's where you get those rocks off. You, you know what the, I mean? You get a certain energy and you're interested in, I guess, you're always interested in how art is made. All around us, we have art, we have buildings, we have creative projects. And I keep talking at the museum about this being a museum, LACMA is a museum of encyclopedic art. It goes back to ancient times. But of course, all art was made by an artist or artists, plural. It was all a creative act at one point. And that's always been fascinating for me. So part of the draw for projects like Roden Crater, and to say two words about what it is, uh, James Terrell's an artist who has a show actually up at Pomona right now. I think it's opening in a couple of weeks. He's an artist whose father was an aeronautical engineer and taught here, and uh, he grew up in Los Angeles. And he became very interested first in uh, psychology and then art. And he was one of the great innovators of the 20th century in the late 60s. He began to not only get rid of frames around paintings or pedestals under sculpture, but he pretty much got rid of art. He started making works of art in empty rooms with pure light. And if you go to the Los Angeles County Museum of Art right now, you'll see an installation of... Southern California art from the permanent collection from the 60s and 70s. And in it, we've installed a work we actually don't own yet, but because it was never collected in those days, we're hoping to, by James Terrell, which is 
a room, empty room, into which there's a projection of light into the corner. And the projection of light, as you walk into the room, you're sure there's a glowing cube of light. It's like a physical palpable sculpture. And even as you move around the room, it moves with you. So here he was interested in breaking down sculpture by taking light and making it physical and palpable. He flies airplanes, and he always talks about his the sky being his studio and how you could shape light and space as sculpture. So the ultimate thing to do was to shape the sky. And the reason he looked for Roden Crater, and this comes from a very L.A. and Western perspective. This is not an East Coast artist thinking. He's thinking about the wide-open landscape of the Western United States, about the open sky that you have great access to here in Los Angeles, And he learns about a phenomena which is called celestial vaulting, which is that depending on the shape of the ground around you, and this happens a bit in stadiums, the shape of the sky changes, or the perceived shape of the sky changes. So what he was interested in doing was building a giant bowl that would sculpt the sky. Like, that's a great admission for an artist. You're going to sculpt the sky. It's too expensive to build one, and so he figured out that a volcanic crater might provide the same opportunity if properly adjusted. So he went out looking for a (laughs) ready-made, flew the country this way and this way, and looked at many. He had some help doing this. He had a grant from Dia Art Foundation and a Guggenheim grant, and he found this crater. And I won't go into all the details, but it's been a long process of... He did that, and when you go there now, the, the bowl is shaped and the sky changes shape. But there are many chambers inside. This is a project that is unfinished. It's one of these great epic projects that you can't visit yet because he's still working on it. It will be amazing when it's done. It'll it all, be one of the wonders of the world, it, I think. It will be, and it will come from this Western aesthetic, and it's a, it's a kind of beautiful pyramidal shape, and as he often jokes, you know, it's like a, our pyramid. Pyramids are kind of expensive to build, so we just found one and put in the chambers. So they're all in there, and these experiences are so beautiful. I'm Claudia Vasquez, speaking from the cafe on the campus of the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. Tonight, we're listening to LACMA's director, Michael Govin, as he chats with Hammer Museum director Anne Philbin. This is Socala Radio, the on-air home of the Socala Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. If you have comments about Socalo Radio, you can send them to comments at zocalola.org. Socalo Radio is giving away five pairs of tickets to the West Coast premiere of Congolese choreographer Faustin Lenyakula's Festival of Lies. Part dance theater, part visual performance, and part social gathering, the piece begins in a relaxed atmosphere, evocative of a neighborhood bar or a popular music concert in Kinshasa. Live music plays as the audience is invited to eat, drink, and listen to stories while a darker undercurrent unfolds. It runs October 25th through the 28th. The first five emails received, which mention Red Cat in the subject line, win a pair of tickets. Again, that's comments at zocalola.org. Don't go away. Stay tuned to Socala Radio. Listeners like you are our most important source of funding, and member support makes the programs you hear on 89.3 KPCC and 89.1 KUOR possible. Our members are community-minded, generous, and enthusiastic about public radio. You can join our membership community today by going online to kpcc.org or by calling 866-888-5722. Thanks.
Welcome back to Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. Here again, Los Angeles County Museum of Art Director Michael Govan with Ann Philbin, Director of the Hammer Museum. Jumping ahead to Dia then, because that really was a project that came out of Dia in, in the sense of the support for it came out of Dia. And that's kind of what Dia did under your leadership. And, and actually before your leadership as well. Why don't you talk about that a little bit? Like really, what, what is the legacy that you, that you left at that institution? And, and how does it affect the way you think about museums in general? Well, maybe to make the transition... I was attracted to Dia and left the Guggenheim. I actually figured I'd, after six years, I'd done my time. We had restored several buildings. We built the Guggenheim Museum Bilbao, which was my chance to come to Los Angeles and work with Frank Gehry, which is a very exhilarating uh, experience. But maybe to go to artists, I was attracted because Dia had these incredibly ambitious projects. I mean, Roden Crater was just one of the things that were imagined. And the idea was to support artists because artists would make things for the culture that No one else could make. And it wasn't just about museums buying pictures and putting them in order in a room. It was about creating a a cultural environment, creating these amazing spaces. So that's what Dia had always done. It had sort of had mixed success. Some projects had failed. Some had stalled. And so what I tried to do at Dia was sort of pull that all together and finish some of the unfinished projects. The DIA, for various reasons, had a financial collapse earlier, so a lot of it was fiscal, organizing finances. But the point was to leave this thing intact and not unfinished, and to work with artists. And uh, for those of you who don't know, what it resulted in that Annie was talking about was a museum that we made on the Hudson River, 60 miles north of New York, in an abandoned Nabisco box printing facility. Having had the Mass Mocha experience, I knew a lot about industrial spaces. And I learned a lot from artists like Donald Judd in Marfa, Texas, who had been sponsored by DIA and had converted empty barracks and former military buildings into art museums. And the idea is somehow a found building is better than a new building, often. And Donald Judd said this. He said, you know, why in this country we have all these empty old buildings? Why are we building new buildings? Why do we spend all this money on new museums when we could just spend the money on the art and nicely rehabilitate or reuse some of the old buildings? So that was the aesthetic. And it was very much also about bringing artists in again. So Judd was no longer alive. He was the great leader of artists becoming architects and making their own museums. But we had worked recently with, at DIA with Robert Irwin, another Los Angeles artist, and Lynn Cook, who was my collaborator and curator, very close collaborator. We had done a project with Robert Irwin, and probably there's no one in the world who's more a master of a kind of three-dimensional environment and a sense of light and space, especially when it's about just modifying it a little bit. Terrell has that quality also with a more focused ability, but... He was really interested in the built environment, Robert Irwin, and also interested in issues that are outside of the art object. He, his most beloved project that was, I think, never finished, sadly, was to work on the Miami airport and create an airport that was an, a space that people would react in differently and could have art in it and was considered as an artwork in a way. So we invited Robert Irwin. And he did a a beautiful job converting this factory with us and with other artists who worked in various spaces. 
the parking lot itself is an artwork. And as people always, I always joke, if you want to do a great parking lot, you get an artist from Los Angeles. And he made a great, the parking lot is an artwork. It's this grid of flowering trees that in the winter, all the berries turn red and you're like in a color field painting. And uh, the parking lot is organized as a pattern and it leads you to an open space. So the thing is, you're in the museum before you're in the museum. And this is what I learned about artists. They're not, unlike architects, they think of the whole environment, and they don't always even think in terms of an object. You know, there's no place at Dia Beacon you can point to and you say, that's Robert Irwin's artwork. It's the totality of the integration of inside and outside. And again, the same idea of a public space. Mm-hmm. And that was something that was, I think, new to Dia, because a lot of Dia's projects, I mean, they weren't meant for an elitist audience, but they were so far away that few people got there. And there's something great about that because to take a pilgrimage to a space gives great meaning to the experience of an artwork, to go somewhere and make that choice. You get a lot more out of it, actually. If you haven't been there, it's really worth a trip. It's very easy. You get on a train and get off a train in this town of Grand Central. You go for $7 or something from Grand Central Station. You take this beautiful ride up right along the Hudson River, the the birthplace of American art where you you can see all these beautiful images and you can walk to the front door. And it is a very unique place in that sense. But it's very open. It's in this town, Beacon, New York, which has been mm-hmm. transformed by the museum. Mm-hmm. It was a very pleasurable thing. I had a great relationship with yep. that mayor, yep. Clara Lou Gould. She was amazing and supportive of the museum. We worked with the governor, and uh, it yep. was a great civic project. But it also was, at its heart, uh, an art project. That's true. Soon after you finished that, you made a decision to come to Los Angeles following you. (laughs) It was just because you were here. Right, you can't blame me. (laughs) Dia could not be more different from the Encyclopedic County Museum that you are now running. And I think this must not have been a very easy decision for you. And I'd love to hear maybe just a little bit of the the personal part of it first. To make that, I think like me, you probably thought you were going to live the rest of your life in New York. Right. So did I. So, what if, tell me about that process a little bit and, and, uh, and what attracted you to this city and this place. You know, DIA is a great organization, and you know, I still miss it because it's such a beautiful place. And we were working on a project downtown in New York, and that had something to do with it. We were, our next project was going to be a new museum in New York City, in the thick of New York, down in the Meatpacking District, which was a few years ago a really down-and-out part of town and now is so gentrified probably none of us could afford an apartment there. And it's shopping and everything else you would expect. And it was partly in that process that I was learning that New York was really changing. It was no longer the 70s New York that we knew where Soho was a really rough place and artists had loft and studios and it was in the throes of a transformation. New York is fantastic. It's completely gentrified. It's There's hardly any room for artists to live in Manhattan anymore and they're getting pushed out of Brooklyn and every place else. So, I mean, I think subliminally, as happy as I was doing that work, you felt that change. And I think it was, so when the opportunity came up, I certainly said no a hundred times. I couldn't even imagine that. And my mom had grown up in New York and for the same reason, perhaps. But I'd known a lot of artists here, those at UCSD who had moved being with Robert Irwin or James Terrell or Maria Nordman, who I knew, who was an artist who had been here. There were many artists I knew, John Baldessari, who I knew in New York. 
and uh, even Barbara Kruger, so many names. And you started thinking about all these artists. And I think also the experience of working on those projects in the Western landscape, the Roden Crater, an artist by the name of Michael Heiser, who's also a California artist, is working in Nevada on what I think will be one of the greatest sculptures ever made. And you start thinking about the Western United States. I started thinking about the changing picture of cities. All the Maybe New York is built in the image of European cities, but all the future cities look like Los Angeles. So when you go to Seoul or you go to Tokyo or you go to Shanghai or you go to Mexico City, they all look like L.A. And so you keep thinking that, I kept thinking, boy, that's, it is the future. It's not just a fiction. That's the future. And there were this, was this, there's an incredible artist population. And, and again, I knew this wasn't a museum of contemporary art, but if you look in history, whenever you see a huge peak in creative activity in an urban environment and a huge concentration of artists, that's a harbinger of all cultural things changing, of growth. It's, it's the artists who develop the real estate, as they did in New York, and you sense that change. So the artists were a factor. That was something I could hold on to because I knew it. I knew you were here. And, uh, you know, it was an open future. And I think also uh, the other factor was played was this idea of civic space. And that, I guess, went back to take it to your first question, to give it a strange relevance. I grew up thinking about civic spaces Mm -hmm. and the importance of symbolic architecture and the relationship between art and architecture in building culture and messages to you know, to, to bring a public together. Well, then you are in the perfect job. I, I, so it was. It seemed like the yeah. perfect job. You know, yeah. here was an opportunity. This with the, for those of you who don't know, the big thing that's happening with the campus now is yes, one of the big things other than, you've heard about the Broad Contemporary Art Museum, which is a fantastic jewel, another cultural jewel for the, for the county of Los Angeles. But the museum had the foresight to buy an entire city block with the May Company some 10 years ago. And part of this project was to remove Ogden Drive, the city that separated the two properties, the county property and that. So there's now a 23-acre contiguous site that has room for a park, that has the Natural History Museum with the tar pits, which everyone knows and loves, I hope, and uh, which I remember going to as a kid. And, you know, what an opportunity. And the thing is, when... We went to school, and when I, even when I studied art, encyclopedic museums were really outmoded. Like, they were not what you wanted to be involved in. They were stodgy. They were a product of, you know, the Enlightenment that had just been ossified into the picture you have of the museum with the pediment and the columns and the steps, and your kids don't want to go there. And then, of course, we know that's changed. There's blockbuster exhibitions in those museums to try to open themselves. But it was in a critical circle. You know, encyclopedic museums were obsolete. Plus, the world was too big. How could you be an encyclopedia? And that's where DIA comes from, the focus in one area. But in a city like Los Angeles, where over 100 languages are spoken, and the issue is, what is the connection between cultures? I mean, I don't care what news station you turn on or what newspaper you open. There's 10 references to the issue of conflicts between cultures. And, you know, people always talk about between nations. I don't know. You know, nations ally or they don't ally. It's cultures that are always clashing, whether it's a, you know, religion is a kind of culture. And, and art, why, why do we study art? Because it embodies all those things. It embodies a religious history, a cultural history. And so in a city that speaks over 100 languages, to have the county museum with all these art from all ages, there was something for everyone there. 
It's the only place you can imagine in Los Angeles. You can have the most dynamic performing arts program, but it happens in time, right? You have to do this program and then that program and then that program, whereas a museum is all simultaneous, all the cultures, all the times, all at once. Like, how can you do better than that? And so that how was the are you idea. going to bring those audiences to the museum? I think the place needs a physical rehabilitation, for starters. And I don't think that's a secret. And uh, you can talk to architectural critics, or you can read the guide. In fact, the first thing I did when I uh, came was I opened all the guidebooks to the L.A. County Museum and copied down what they wrote so I'd understand how it was seen from outside. And, you know, they all referred to the mess of architecture, (laughs) all of them. And they even said, beloved despite architecture, (laughs) or, you know, that it had been a tough history there of combinations of buildings and time and perhaps lack of funds and stalled efforts. And the Broad Building and hiring Renzo Piano was obviously a start to that, but obviously the museum's much larger than contemporary art. Oddly, here I was playing the reverse role, which is that, okay, contemporary art's great, but the real issue is can you transform the whole museum and see that as a doorway to go back in time to the Assyrian reliefs in 1000 BC. And so I think physical rehabilitation is a necessary part. As you know, I'm not usually a fan of architecture over art, but there'll have to be some buildings made. We're doing that. We're going to restore the May Company. And if you want to know how, so how we're going to do it on that level, we're, we're collecting as well, and we're collecting also strategically. I've made this point before, but we're not going to be a copy of New York or Chicago or Philadelphia or any place else. Why do that? We're Los Angeles, and we have a different worldview here. We're looking to Latin America. We're looking to Asia. We have the only structure built for Japanese art in the country, the first one in the, in the pavil- Japanese pavilion. We have a wonderful pre-Columbian collection, ancient American collection, and I've said this a few times. If you go to the Metropolitan Museum, you walk in, you have Egypt on your right, Greece and Rome on your left, and you walk up to European painting. Right? That's the worldview of, of a European perspective and even of a New York perspective when the, Mo- when the Met was made. You live in Los Angeles in the 21st century, that's not your perspective. In fact, it wasn't even known in 1905 when they were laying out the museum that the Mayans also invented writing that there's a primary culture on our own soil, in our own continent, and that is an incredible culture that's been, was known, but it's been unearthed in terms of scholarship since then. So my view is there's a rewriting of history for Los Angeles to make and for its public to be participants in, and I think it has to have a sense of wonder and spectacle to it. Mm -hmm. One of the great things about L.A. is it was always built as a utopian vision. All these architects came here to build the best houses to live in. The sun shines here. The palm trees are here. And you see the ocean. So it's got to have that feeling of light and space. And so partly what we're going to do is invite artists. Uh, Speaking of spectacle, tell us about the Jeff Koons. We're we're going (laughs) to... Well, Robert Irwin's bringing palm trees. That's an obvious thing, right? He's going to bring us a garden of palm trees. To speak first, uh, Chris Burden. Mm -hmm. Now, you know about, we've talked about this piece. Chris Burden, who's an artist who lives up in Topanga Canyon, L.A. artist, has taught here, teaches here at UCLA still, I think. Used to. For the last seven years, he's been collecting cast iron Los Angeles street lamps, mainly from the 30s. So we get rid of street lamps all the time because everybody wants the newfangled ones, or when a car hits one, they topple over and they remove them. So there are collectors, and he's been collecting quite a few, and he decided to keep collecting them, to restore them, to paint them all gray, and we're talking 200 lamps. 
and he dragged them up to Topanga Canyon, re-electrified them, and has made them into an artwork. So sitting on campus, when we hopefully when we open in February, if we can get this all turned around in time, you're going to see these, this amazing glowing temple of street lamps from Los Angeles. And the beautiful Fantastic. thing about it is they each come, each kind of street lamp comes from a different city in L.A. because the cities are separate enough that each city out of civic pride and public art made a different design. So mm. you have the Broadway rows and you have nice. the, all the different designs. So it's a collection of collections. It's going to be a spectacle. Mm-hmm. And yet it meets every standard. It's public artwork. It's fun for kids. Functional. It's functional. We've got solar panels to light them so that it's not taking too much energy, thinking Perfect. green, <laughs> and BP's paying for those to take care of some of their oil issues. <laughs> They're going to give us solar panels very lovingly, in fact, because they want to open the place to the public as well and think that's a great thing to do. So BP is actually taking care of the entrance, putting the solar panels on, and helping us with the energy efficiency through the whole museum. And then there's the famous Jeff Koons, which has been variously misinterpreted. <laughs> a couple of trustees said if you hang a train on a crane at our museum. I don't know if I'm going to be here anymore. And it is a weird image at first. And for those of you who don't know the image, Jeff Koons, and this was leaked to the press because we were talking about it at a lecture, Jeff Koons, who's a New York artist, has been working for many years on a beautiful, tall sculpture. And what it is is a Liebherr construction construction crane that's 160 feet tall. And it's got a big red cab and a yellow filigree crane. And from it hangs a 1940s Baldwin steam locomotive pointed down, about 30, nose 30 feet off the ground. And three times a day, it performs. The wheels turn faster and faster and faster, and it puffs smoke and whistles and then slows down. And everybody says, you know, this is crazy. This is ludicrous. This is some insane artwork. What are they doing? So then back up, public sculpture. First of all, it's hard to get dead artists to do public sculpture. So, <laughs> you know, those of you who want Rodin or some bronze sculptor to make the sculpture, you know, they're not around anymore as they were before. This is a new era, new vision. So I generally prefer to hire a living artists to make new work. And um, this was a sculpture he'd actually worked on before. And think about it, he actually was originally going to do it in Paris for a new museum that Francois Pinault was building. And it has an obvious relationship to the Tower of the Eiffel Tower, this industrial object with the filigree of the crane. We were talking about it in the context of the Magritte show when it was on view and when we invited John Baldessari, Stephanie Barron and I invited John Baldessari to do this fantastic installation where John, L.A. artist, also put clouds on the floor and the L.A. freeways on the ceiling so the world was turned upside down in this great surrealist gesture. Jeff Koons lent work to the show because he's a huge fan of Magritte and there you saw the painting with the train coming out of the fireplace and Via Selman's has a train. Right? You start realizing trains are everywhere in art history. The apotheosis of the Industrial Revolution, incredibly beautiful object. And, of course, what I realized about this thing is what it was, was uh, it, for, if this was the town square of Los Angeles, this was the Campanile, right? It was the tall structure. Every town square has a tall structure right? that you can see far away. It's like the Eiffel Tower or whatever else. And like a clock, it has to mark time, which it does. And so it fits in this absolutely ancient, classical model of a civic space, mm-hmm. and yet with this sense of life and fun and seriousness about art history, right? Any of us who look at it can see all the references, so it meets every test. And, you know, what I imagined is, like, what kid in Los Angeles or grown-up isn't going to want to come see this? This will invite people to the museum. 
and I, I, I say it somewhat seriously, like with the John, inviting John Baldessari to play with the Magritte show, if I had an ultimate objective, it would be to create a museum where you know, kids drag their parents to the museum. Mm-hmm. I want to like reverse the whole... <laughs> I want to reverse that whole thing when I was a kid to go back to your first question of, mm-hmm. you know, the stodgy museum and not wanting to touch or not wanting to well, be Well, the Magritte show is a perfect example. I mean, that was a good show, but you made it a great show by that installation. John and made it a great John show. John made it what a great show. Do? But you, you brought John to this place that transformed and made it magical. It made the exhibition magical. And I think you're absolutely right. It was, I remember going there and seeing these kids standing in the room, and it was just, it, it was such a brilliant idea. And that's also something that obviously you need to be thinking about a lot because I think in your past jobs, like for example, Dia, there was a certain sense, maybe I'm wrong about this, but a certain sense that you were doing exhibitions and projects because they just had to be done. And if there were only 12 people in the world who were going to come see them, that was okay because the artist needed to accomplish it and you were going to help them get there. That's not true about LACMA. So your whole, everything has to shift. Your modus operandi has to shift. At the same time, you, you want to have the same, you want to support artists the same way. Your audience plays a bigger role, does it not? Yes, but I think that a similar, there's a similar basis. I mean, I, when I was back in New York recently to visit my 12-year-old, she handed me, she had found a book that her class had done the year Dia Beacon opened, and I guess she was eight or nine. And this was this thing about Dia Beacon that you learn. Kids totally love it. You think it is the most elitist, you know, that's the idea. It doesn't matter if 12 people come. But actually, artists are all about communication. They do what they do to communicate. Mm-hmm. And forget art. All artists, all artworks. You know, that's what they are. I don't care if you're talking about the ancient works or the modern works or the works made yesterday. And properly presented... I mean, kids love Dia Beacon. They run through the Richard Serra's. They learn, they learn to count from the Ankawara date paintings. They understand geometry. They can see uh, Fred Sandbach's string, you know, in space and understand sculpture. And I guess that's what I learned from that experience is that in many ways the kids are more open. It takes you a lifetime of learning to figure out that paintings are supposed to be in frames or that sculpture has to sit on a pedestal. We're not born with that. That's something that we are taught. So there's an openness to that attitude, and I think that's the idea. The ideal museum would be one that really indulged uh, curiosity. Right. First and foremost, curiosity. You have all your history and all your records. That's great. But you have to indulge the curiosity of looking and the pleasure of it. And I think that's the idea. And you can do both. It doesn't take away from anything. So the idea is L.A. is the best place to do that. Right because we have a big artist community, a big creative community, an open structure. I keep saying, I was talking to John Baldessari, no one would have let us do that at the Met. No one would have let us put highways on the ceiling and clouds on the floor. L.A. has the best opportunity, I think, to create a absolutely true. Now, obviously, that, that makes perfect sense to me and probably to every single person in this room. Is your staff and is your board on board, so to speak, with with this philosophy, and what are, what are some of the internal challenges that you're facing for an institution that's this large? In Right. Well, the biggest challenges are institutions this large is, are like, uh, you know, they're like small cities. They have massive number of constituents. They have obligations of everything from 
the education programs. We spend over a million dollars in District 4 schools on education programs to the highest level of scholarship. So it's the multiple constituencies. And honestly, the county is very generous to fund the museum every year, but um, the museum's grown and the population grown at a huge rate, and funding hasn't kept up. It's a vastly underfunded museum compared to its colleagues. And I think about that thinking, you know, compare L.A. to Chicago, and no ill intended to Chicago, but this is one of the most powerful, fastest-growing, wealthiest cities in the world. We need to be building a museum that reflects that. So there's a lot of work to do. Well, let's talk about that for a minute, because as you and I both know, the philanthropic giving in this city is very, very different from New York, very different from San Francisco, from Chicago. What is it about Los Angeles, and what can we do to change that? I mean, how, how are you thinking about that? Well, our New York friends would say, oh, my God, you know, L.A., just, they just don't have that sense of philanthropy. You can see the scale of institutions. Now, that's, there's Disney Hall, and there's things that have been accomplished, but surely on a scale level, it's nothing, not even fraction of New York. And there are two ways to look at that. You can say that's because LA is different and whatever, self-centered. I don't know what it is that people have 10 excuses. And I looked at the excuses and I said, none are true. There are great, there's academic institutions, there are great people, they're generous people. People say, oh, well, people go to Universal Studios, they go to LA, they don't go to the museum. They go to Universal Studios, they go to the beach, they're not interested. Not true. All the statistics say Tourists to L.A. make the same decisions, and they put a museum almost highest on the list. People say, well, you know, it's traffic. problem is traffic. You can't get anywhere like even tonight. <laughs> so then I often say, well, then tell me exactly how 15 million people a year go to the Grove, which is two blocks away from us. Like, that's not an excuse either. So that you come with this rational perspective, and I think the answer is time. L.A. is just a younger city. It takes time and maturity, multiple generations, considered thought, requires wealth to be created. I just say it's a matter of time. So it's going to happen with or without, I think, Mm -hmm. maybe not without you, but (laughs) without me, without us. It would happen without us. It's just a question of that time. And so I guess that feeling is, when is it going to really happen on a large scale? Every city, you know, we talk about this all the time. Cities don't grow just like this. They... They grow like this, and then there are big leaps, and then there's especially a tipping in point, yeah. culture. So I think the question is, will it happen here? Will it happen soon on that level? We see a renaissance of kinds with the number of artists, the, the press attention L.A. is getting. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's the exciting thing about being here. I think New York is really jealous of L.A. right now, actually. We, we have all our friends coming to visit us, I know. right? I looking know. Looking around, looking at the sunshine, <laughs> the energy. It's so true. You've just heard Michael Govan, director of the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, chatting with Ann Philbin, director of the Hammer Museum. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, L.A.'s free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Tuesday, October 23rd, critically acclaimed novelist Francisco Goldman visits Socalo to discuss the themes of his first nonfiction book, The Art of Political Murder, Who Killed the Bishop? While telling a story as rich in human drama, enigma, and surprise as any novel, Goldman explores the murder of Guatemala's leading human rights activist, Bishop Juan Gerardi. Known in Guatemala as the crime of the century, the Bishop Gerardi murder case, with its unexpectedly outlandish scenarios and sensational developments, confounded observers and generated extraordinary controversy. 
Events are free, but reservations are recommended. For more information and to reserve seating, just click on our website, socalola.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. In a moment, questions the Socalo audience posed for Michael Govan. Stay tuned to Socalo Radio. This is Harry Belafonte. Stay informed. Be captivated. Engage your mind. Listen to NPR News and pledge your support today. Click and join at kpcc.org today. Welcome back to Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Now our Socalo audience poses questions for LACMA's Michael Govan. Good evening, everyone. My name is Sibon Quintanilla. I've been fascinated by art since I was born. I think everybody, like you say, everybody is creative. My question is, how does... Paul Getty Museum is going to influence the new LACMA Museum that you are predicting. How is the, the, how is the Getty Museum going to influence? Well, Annie, we could talk about this. The, I, mean, I think that, that one of the things that's interesting about Los Angeles is it's a very big, sprawling city, but it's not so big that people can't get to know each other and work together. So uh, we were at dinner last week with the new president of the Getty and the director and other colleagues like Jeremy Strick, who runs the MoCA downtown. And we were talking about how, well, actually, we're small enough we can work together. And I think, and I don't mean in terms of a cartel or anything, that, but uh, although we did discuss, could we raise the bar altogether? No. But I think the idea is, I don't know if it's influence, but there is an interrelationship between institutions. And Norton Simon was there that can happen. And I, I mean, Annie, that you know That feels like a growing new thing to me, I have to say. I mean, I think people are beginning to understand that together we can make a much bigger difference. And and the Getty, yeah. with all of their resources, and especially in the, the new Getty, I think they are recognizing that they have to focus on Los Angeles. They have been focused in other parts of the world for years. And I think they are, uh, Jim under Jim Wood's um, guidance, they are shining a light on this city now, and, and it's really great. Very exciting. Hello, thank you for coming to L.A. My name's Eric Handel, and I'm wondering if there's any potential for LACMA to acquire Johnny's across the street yes. and turn that into either an architectural <laughs> and question. design pavilion or at least a cafeteria? Great, <laughs> great question. <laughs> so, yeah, so the first, we were in our first board meeting, and I said, so what are we doing about Johnny's? In fact, one of my friends, an artist here, Diana Thader, had given me a Miracle Mile, the movie, which takes place between Park La Brea, where I was living at the moment, the museum, Johnny's, the building across the street, and the tar pits. So uh, Johnny's is a landmark, and we had talked, it's actually owned by the organization that owns the 99 cent stores and they have part of the they have the parking there and we've talked with them about whether they'd be willing at some point to consider donating it so that we could restore it and keep it a landmark you know in LA there aren't the same protections for buildings that there are in other in a city like New York where when something's landmarked you really can't touch it it's very hard where we don't have that so the idea is what we did do right away because I was driving uh, down Wilshire and I kept seeing 
not that I don't love movie ads, but cell phone ads in front of the museum on the billboard above Johnny's. And it's a famous billboard. It's one of the first big billboards on Wilshire Boulevard. So we rented the billboard for three years. So now you'll see that's <laughs> all advertising art and LACMA. And John Baldessari put a big pipe on it for the Magritte show. So we got the billboard. Now we're working on Johnny's. <laughs> Maybe you could help. If we want to, we could all help do that. <laughs> could be a group project. Hello, Good. My name is Edward Landler, and I'm wondering about a work of art that has received attention, but it's in the wrong part of town. The man who built it is not, doesn't have a pedigree, and yet I think more than any other work of art in Los Angeles represents what it is that makes us what want to say. create. Uh, how do you feel you can make the city smaller by bringing the Watts Towers right. into the County Museum circle? Well, Wow. You guys must have designed my first three board meeting program <laughs> agendas or you were listening. I, one of the things that I remember, my strongest memories of Los Angeles when I was in school in San Diego was coming to Los Angeles and visiting the Watts Towers. And the Watts Towers, as we would all agree, any of us in the art side, is one of the true monuments of the nation. This is an individual who, you know, he came home from work every day. He built this thing, beautiful thing. In fact... They tried to tear it down once with the understanding it wasn't stable enough and they were going to build a development there, and they tried and couldn't pull it down. It was, it was that level, you know, perseverance physically and mentally that's embodied in, in a piece. In fact, we did a talk somewhere else, and I, uh, James Terrell commented that it was that specific work of art that gave him not the idea for what Roden Crater was, but that you could create projects that were lifelong endeavors. Right, So its influence is huge. One of my trustees, when I discussed providing support, and we have somebody on our conservation staff who was involved, and I get about an email a week where we're talking about whether there are ways we can help with it and be supportive of the project. And then I'll get a trustee who'll say, well, can't we just bring it to the campus? And that'll be, it'll be great that way. But of course, my view is it's exactly part of the other program we were just talking about in the last two questions is to you know, make sure there's art in all kinds of places, and, and that's what was done. So um, the answer is, what are we doing practically? I certainly has made it a big part of my speeches and programs about Los Angeles and artworks, um, and James Terrell and I have sort of made that pact, too. He talks about it a lot to make sure it gets the proper due around the world. And we've talked with the city of Los Angeles, who maintains it now, about whether we can be in some way helpful to their uh, maintenance effort and maybe you know, public access. So I don't know what the future holds, but it's a, it certainly is an icon for all of us. And I would certainly think it's worthy of just being part of our collection, even if it didn't move. So someday, maybe that's the future. Support for this public radio podcast comes from Acura, featuring the TL Type S with a 286 horsepower V6 and real-time traffic alerts. Learn more at Acura.com.